Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Colin Rice, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bryn Mawr College. His new book, Leveraging Distortions, Explanation, Idealization, and Universality in Science is just out from the MIT Press. Most of us agree that science aims to tell us what is true about the world, but how do we get at the truth by using theories and models that deliberately, pervasively, and ineliminably distort what they are about? How does a model that makes wholly unrealistic, even impossible assumptions about reality help to explain it and provide us with understanding? In his new book, Colin Rice tackles this puzzle by examining how idealization figures in the development of models and theories and how such distortions help provide otherwise inaccessible explanations. He takes issue with the dominant view of scientific explanation as primarily a matter of providing causal information, and he argues that providing information about what is irrelevant is often what does the explanatory work. His book presents a well-structured challenge to many of the views of scientific explanation and understanding that have dominated philosophy of science for decades. Let's turn to the interview. Okay. Hello, Colin Rice. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's, I'm looking forward to talking about leveraging distortions, explanation, idealization, and universality uh, in Thank science. Um, so uh, I always like to start with a question about you rather than the book uh, or indirectly about the book. Um, tell us a bit about yourself and how you discovered or came to you know, become a philosopher, and then um, how you came to write this book. Sure. Um, so uh, as an undergraduate at a small of arts college called Simpson College, which is just south of Des Moines in Iowa, uh-huh. um, I was a science major um, when I started. I was in physics and chemistry and took a lot of math classes. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. And throughout those first two years of undergrad, I sort of I found myself asking a lot of questions about, um, even though I could, what I used to call churn and burn all the mathematics they wanted me to do, uh, how was I sure that the math was really tracking what was happening in the real world? Um, And how was the ability to do all the mathematics really translating into me being able to explain or understand uh, the various physical phenomena that we were interested in? So I asked that question one too many times uh, from my <laughs> physics professor, and they said, you're in the wrong department. Um, and they sent me over to philosophy. Um, uh, I ended up 
uh, double majoring in physics and philosophy and continuing to take uh, extra math classes. Um, and I guess I suppose like a good liberal arts student, I decided to try and find a career where I wouldn't have to choose between either of those options. And so I went to uh, graduate school uh, to study philosophy of science. Um, and while I was uh, at the University of Missouri, where I did my PhD uh, with Andrei Aryev, uh, I met several uh, sort of philosophers that influenced me to, to think about explanation, in particular, Robert Batterman and Andrei, uh, uh, his own work on uh, explanation in both physics and biology. And one of the things um, that I think a lot of people focus, were focusing on at the time were the ways that these different disciplines explain things differently. Um, but I actually saw a lot of parallels between the kinds of cases I was learning about in biology and the kinds of cases uh, that Batterman and some other people had been talking about in physics. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of wanted to unpack uh, what that was. Uh, and while I was there, Michael Weisberg and Chris Pincock in particular got me interested in thinking about modeling and the modeling literature uh, and, and mathematics and things like that. And so I ended up uh, finishing the project and writing a dissertation about optimality modeling um, and how they explain in biology um, and sort of have spent the time after the dissertation thinking about the ways that various models um, and mathematical models in particular are used to represent reality or not represent reality right. uh, and how they help help scientists explain and understand. And so that you can sort of see leads into the topic of the book, which is essentially focused on that kind of question. Excellent. Um, yeah. So we will, we will revisit this idea of optimality modeling in a moment. Um, the, 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 the puzzle, I mean, the book has a very, uh, a very interesting kind of motivating question is, you know, in science, you know, most of us think that we're trying to get at some sort of accurate representation or accurate picture of the world in some sense. Um, and that's usually interpreted as some way of, you know, getting at the truth uh, about reality, about the world. And yet we do this somehow by deliberately and pervasively distorting um, our models or our theories in various ways. And so it's sort of, it's really puzzling. How do you get at a true picture of the way the world is uh, or an accurate one uh, through deliberate distortion and pervasive, ineliminable, as you put it, um, distortion. So could you, could you sort of explain that puzzle a bit? Sure. Um, so I think the main puzzle is that, um, as you said, I think sort of intuitively, a lot of people think that science is either aiming at truth, or at the very least, most of our philosophical accounts of the epistemic aims of science, things like getting knowledge or understanding or explanation, all of those accounts tend to build in some sort of truth requirement. So to know something, you can only know something if it's true. Um, and understanding and explanation are similarly supposed to be based in truth somehow. So explaining the weather by citing the Greek gods is a potential explanation, but it's not the real explanation because those gods we think do not exist. And the real explanation involves meteorology and things like that. So uh, if we have these sort of truth aims and these truth requirements for being epistemically successful in science, it's sort of puzzling that when we look at how science actually constructs explanations and builds understanding of the world, they do it via idealized models and theories that they deliberately distort 
uh, and know that they are inaccurate representations. And so um, I think there have been sort of two main responses by philosophers who've tried to sort of work out this puzzle of how that could be. The first option is to try and say that the epistemic outputs of science only depend on the true parts. So to find out how our models and theories are at least partially true, and to say that really only the accurate or true parts of the models or theories are playing an important role in generating uh, the things that we believe in science. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we'll talk about um, here in a little bit, I'm sure, I call that the decompositional strategy. It's about trying to decompose science into its accurate and inaccurate parts, and then argue that the accurate parts are what are doing most of the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second main option is to say, no, the idealizations that we find are too pervasive uh, to, to make that really work. And therefore, um, we can't say that the models and theories are true or accurate. Um, and so we have to either be anti-realist about science, where we say science isn't about generating truths, or we have to give up something about um, the factivity of the understanding. So there are various non-factive accounts of explanation and understanding that have tried to argue that you can understand something in a non-factive way um, by believing many falsehoods, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, what I try and do in the book is say that actually, I don't think either of those options are going to work. One, because the representations I argue are what I, what I call holistically distorted or pervasively distorted. So we can't decompose them easily into their accurate and inaccurate parts. Mm-hmm. So just saying that the results of science only depend on the true parts is not really uh, a feasible strategy for us to, to carry out. Um, but then I think that really what we need to do is instead of saying, well, the models and theories are false and therefore the epistemic outputs must be not focused on truth either, uh, is to sort of unpack the, the details of this, uh, these steps of uh, scientific reasoning or scientific inquiry in detail across different cases for how the models are being used to extract other truths. So instead of just asking if the model or theory is accurate and answering no, uh, there's a further question about, well, if the model or theory is inaccurate, how are the scientists using that strategically in ways that get them where they need to go? Um, And I think that at least I'm hopeful or optimistic that we can sort of get a better account of the success of science, epistemic success of science in terms of explaining and understanding our world, which I think intuitively it's done, um, rather than just sort of giving up because uh, on those those achievements simply because the models and theories are uh, idealized. Right. Well, maybe you can um, say a bit about idealization, right? Um, you know, that obviously plays a, a key role here is this idea of, a theory or a model that is idealized in certain ways. Can you, what is it that goes on in that? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, in the book, the reason that the title of the book is leveraging distortions is I try and use distortion as a sort of more general concept that includes idealization. Mm -hmm. Um, And most philosophers want to contrast between abstraction, which is about sort of leaving things out. So I leave features or properties out of my model that I know are in the real system uh, versus idealization, which is deliberately introducing a false assumption or a false uh, sort of inaccurate parameter or something like that, that we know doesn't match the real world. So instead of saying silent about it, we actually actively make a decision, the scientist does, to include that feature um, in an inaccurate way. 
So even though I know that there are a finite number of particles in my tea kettle, uh, physicists might assume that there's an infinite number of particles for various reasons. Or you can do similar things with populations of cheetahs. Um, even though we know all populations of cheetahs are finite, there are various mathematical models that assume that the population of cheetahs is infinite for various reasons. So that's the kind of deliberate introduction of uh, an idealization. I like to use distortion simply because I actually think that leaving things out often distorts or misrepresents the world in various ways. So it's not just failing to say something, but often uh, failing to say something about feature A will distort how the model represents feature B, which is included. So for example, if we want to describe or model um, development, uh, if we leave uh, out genetics, we will probably distort the ways that environmental factors uh, play a role and vice versa. So if we leave out the environmental or social factors, we distort how genetics plays a role. And so it's not just deliberately misrepresenting a thing that can distort it. Often it's uh, leaving out the other things that it's related to can uh, introduce distortion to. Hmm. So this, this plays an important, I mean, uh, an important role in uh, defending various ways that you go into, which includes the optimality modeling that you mentioned before. Um, the ways in which scientists will engage in non-causal types of explanation. And there the contrast is, you know, it's pretty standard. In fact, you call it, I think, the standard approach or something. Um, uh, it, it's certainly pervasive in philosophy of science to think that all or much or the most important part of scientific explanation is in some way, you know, providing uh, causal information, right? What causes what? And this is, you see this particularly, I think, with the whole mechanistic movement recently. Um, sure. But it's, it goes back, it goes beyond that, right? Um, and so one of your your you begin your critique before providing a sort of an alternative view of what it is to explain and what it is to understand. Uh, you first try to establish, you know, a lot of science actually isn't going for causal explanation. It's providing non-causal explanations. Um, so could you explain a bit about that difference and then the different ways in which some explanations in science are non-causal? Certainly. Um, so as you said, I, in, the, in the book I call, I refer to this sort of collection of claims as the standard view or the standard approach. There's certainly not a consensus. Not everyone is sort of in that uh, boat. And there are plenty of people who have argued that there are non-causal explanations uh, besides myself. Uh, and, and lots of other sort of parts of the standard view have been, been challenged. But there is this sort of idea... Um, that mostly combines two, two claims. One, that most explanation is causal, as you said, in science or, or maybe exclusively causal, um, and that the way to explain with a model or a theory is therefore to accurately represent or accurately describe those causes um, that are explanatory. Um, I think, so the, as you said, the first sort of critique that I raise in the book uh, of that approach is just to say that there's a lot of uh, explanation in science that trades in non causal factors. Um, and I primarily try and do a sort of deep dive on three cases uh, that I've published other articles about uh, optimality explanations in biology, 
statistical explanations in physics and biology and uh, what Robert Batterman and I call minimal model explanations in physics and biology. Um, and uh, rather than go through all the details of those various cases, I'll just sort of some of the highlights. Uh, what I was hoping to do in the book is instead of just sort of rehashing what I had already said about those three cases, was trying to figure out what of those three non-causal explanations had in common uh, that might help us sort of get some uh, some features that need to be incorporated into an updated uh, view of explanation. And then maybe think about how they are, as you said, different from the causal explanations, because there are plenty of causal explanations in science, um, or how um, they might be have certain things in common with causal explanations and that make them all explanations. So I think the, the non-causal pieces are that they... Um, there are lots of dependence relations in the world. Some of them are causal dependencies, but others are things like mathematical or statistical dependencies, um, where uh, by dependence here, I mean, if that factor had been different, the phenomenon would have been different. So there's some sort of sense of difference making here. If we had changed this statistical feature, uh, so for example, if the uh, Bryn Mawr, where I work, is just outside of Philadelphia, if the average number of children in Philadelphia goes from 2.1 to 2.5, that might uh, lead to overcrowding in schools. Uh, but it seems a little strange to call that average figure a cause uh, of that, of that um, given that it's not a physical thing in the world. It's a mathematical mm-hmm. average. So um, that's just uh, a sort of a simpler example. But in each of these cases that I look at, there's some sort of mathematical trade-off in, in optimality cases in particular. Um, or some sort of statistical feature of the population, like its uh, mean or variance, or some kind of um, overall property of the system, like it conserves the number of particles, or it's symmetric um, in that you look at it from different angles and it uh, has the same properties. But those things are really properties of the system that aren't causal, but they're properties that if they hadn't been there, the phenomenon would not have occurred. And in many of these explanations, they're what are really being the primary focus of the explanation, uh, is citing those non-causal um, pieces. And, and another piece of this is showing that um, those non-causal factors typically are consistent with a wide range of different causal or mechanical stories. That's not always the case, but in many of them, uh, the idea is that there might be a very wide range uh, of ways that the system might have been causally or mechanically uh, that would have given rise to these same sort of uh, non-causal factors that are really doing the work. So -hmm. it seems like the causal or mechanical features that were actually in the system are not all that relevant or important in many of these cases. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I, yeah, this, this occurred to me as I was reading as well as, you know, what you had said, you know, if, if, you know, A hadn't happened, then B wouldn't have happened. Right. And, uh, you know, David Lewis famously starts with Hume when he def- when he defines causation right. uh, that way, right? So it's one of his two definitions, and Lewis says, well, here's, you know, let me develop this into a counterfactual account of causation. So right. uh, you're saying they're non-causal. Um, right. What, what do you say to somebody who thinks, well, they are causal? They're, they're it's, you know... I'm David Lewis or something. I think that's causal. Right. <laughs> I'm right, not. Sure. So um, I think if you want to go 
down that path. And in some sense, it's not so crucial, I think, whether or not, um, uh, depends on the view of causation you really want to put here. But I, I tend to think that when we make most of the causal accounts of explanation that we have, not accounts of, uh, like Lewis is an account of what causation is, most of the causal accounts of, or accounts of causal explanation, I should, should say, from uh, people like Michael Strevens and Jim Woodward are going to argue that not all counterfactual relationships count as causal um, because that's a sort of further metaphysical way in which a counterfactual dependence is grounded or mediated. Mm-hmm. So for, for I think Woodward's probably got um, the most influential account here. It's only the counterfactuals that um, sort of are grounded or made true or something like that by some sort of intervention um, or an intervention test, I should say, tells us whether or not we've got a real causal relationship there. And so um, Woodward and others have sort of pointed out that there might be lots of counterfactual dependencies that don't involve the ability to intervene or manipulate the factor um, in the way that we can with causes. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he would call those non-causal explanations or non-causal factors in those cases. And so I've sort of tried to um, find lots of those instances in science and say that this is actually really not just a few sort of uh, small examples, but a pretty prominent uh, piece of science. Now, if you're a Lewis person and you want to say, well, I've just got a counterfactual account of causation um, that doesn't involve any metaphysical commitments about there being a process or a mechanism or a physical oomph between two things in order mm-hmm. for it to be a causal relation, then I think I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. I think it's more that metaphysical commitment to their needing to be uh, the ability to intervene or manipulate or describe the mechanism that links A and B. All of those are sort of further things that causal accounts of causal explanation in the literature have built in as required that are missing in these cases. Right, right. So I guess, I mean, it's sort of, they're sort of, uh, you know, I'm thinking of some of the more, uh, the me- some of the mechanists who kind of insist that, you know, all explanation really is ultimately, um, if not causal, it's mechanistic, right? Um, sure. And... Uh, how do you, you know, uh, this kind of comes to a more abstract question about just what counts as an explanation. And maybe this is just another way of saying, you know, it's all causal or, or not. And, uh, but I sort of wonder if one of, you know, somebody who's a hardcore mechanist will just say, well, those aren't really, you know, sure. ultimately you're going to have to mention these mechanisms that you know tie these things together and you know statistical information and all these other you know sorts of modeling and modeling techniques that you that you rightly uh you know pick up on and elaborate um they're all important parts of science and they all contribute but you know the sort of the ultimate i don't know if you want to put it goal the ultimate you know explanatory stuff really is the mechanisms underlying that, you know, so you, you know, and, and sometimes you talk about, you know, spurious correlations, right? I mean, they're all over right. the place and you can make these and, you know, it's, it's not until you actually get some sort of a causal factor going in some way that you actually get a, a an explanation, right? Um, sure. So I guess the question, you know, what is it that makes this, an explanation as opposed to information that will in some sense like ultimately point to 
the real stuff that we want to get at that will do the real explaining. Right. Yeah, good. So I'll maybe take this in two parts, which is first just saying, you know, what makes it an explanation or what's explanatory about this kind of thing. Um, and then two, why, why I think uh, we shouldn't sort of dig in our heels and say, well, they're not, then they're not explanations if they don't get us to the real mechanisms or something like that. So I think in terms of why they're explanations, you know, I, I, um, in terms of what an explanation is, it's supposed to be an answer to why something occurred. Um, and I think what we want is some uh, ability to understand not just which kinds of things made it happen, but how they're, if they had been different, right, things um, would have been different about the phenomenon. And a counterfactual dependence uh, will give you that kind of information or sort of satisfies that desire for an explanation, uh, whether or not the feature is causal. That is, you don't have to enter that context by saying, tell me what the causes or the mechanisms are. I really just want to know which properties or features of the system, if they had been different or changed or otherwise, um, would have made it, you know, made it not the case. And these mm-hmm. these sorts of pictures do these ex- explanations do that. Uh, right. So this goes back to earlier. I was talking about some of the things that they have in common. So in chapter four of the book, I try and present a counterfactual dependence and independence, uh, which I'll talk about in a second. A kind of explanation that. One of the criteria I say is we need to figure out what it is that causal and non-causal explanations have in common uh, that allows them to sort of all count as explanations. And I think that that's really at the heart of what's going on here is that we, um, if we sort of say, well, it's only going to be mechanisms or causes that does the work, then we um, are just missing all of these other ways that we can satisfy what I think is the real aim of an explanation, which is identifying factors that made a difference and that made a difference in the sense that if they weren't there, the phenomenon would have been very different or wouldn't have occurred or something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, So uh, now let me say just a few things about why I think they're not mechanistic explanations, uh, uh, even though they satisfy some of those criteria. So, um, or maybe why we shouldn't just sort of uh, pound our fists and say, let's stick with only mechanistic explanation. I think, First and foremost, that's just not what the science shows. So in scientific practice, (laughs) there are plenty of examples of non-causal explanations and the scientists calling them explanations. I don't think we should just let the scientists decide what counts as an explanation, but I think there's an overwhelming uh, number of examples in which that's occurring that we should at least take seriously as philosophers. And I think if we can identify features that those have in common, those kinds of cases have in common with causal or mechanical explanations, of course, there are plenty of those in science too, uh, then that's a a useful unifying project rather than um, something that we should shy away from. Um, And uh, I think also there's just been a growing literature in the philosophy of science sort of trying to not just take scientists at their word, but uh, sort of analyze these cases philosophically to try and uncover what it is that makes them explanations or makes them explanatory in their own right. Uh, even though they don't cite mechanisms or refer to mechanisms or things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the one last piece that I think is sort of a unique, many people, as I said, have argued that there are non-causal explanations. Uh, But one of the unique features of the account that I defend in the book uh, is this idea that counterfactual independence or irrelevant factors can actually play a crucial role in many explanations. Right. Uh, And most of the cases I talk talk about, there are pattern explanations where we want to know why something is stable across lots of different cases. Um, and that 
that's really going to go against the sort of setup of we should be citing causes or mechanisms or things that always made a difference because these are things that even if they had been different, um, the phenomenon still would have occurred. And in some contexts, I think that's actually what we want out of an explanation, or at least we want some of that information. Right. So that, I mean, that's interesting, you know, I mean, and you, you do make that, that point very clear. It's, is, uh, scientists will often be trying to isolate sort of what's, what's irrelevant in order to explain. Could you, and, and that's just, you know, that, that there, it's not contradictory, but it, there's something that's, that's very interesting about the idea that, you know, you're chasing irrelevance to show what is to show, you know, to, to provide an explanation after all. Um, could you, could right. you give to that? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So um, I think one key piece, one thing, thing to note here is that not every explanation has to cite irrelevant factors or anything like that, but that there are, I think, uh, clear contexts in science in which they become important. So another way of putting this is something that's in fact uh, irrelevant to the phenomenon becomes explanatorily relevant. Um, and that depends a lot on what kind of thing the scientists want to explain um, and perhaps how they want to explain it. So the context plays a really important role here. Um, but two things that can happen. Um, one is that very often, and I try and focus on these cases in the book, I think philosophers have tended to sort of start with uh, sort of simple cases of trying to explain why a car crashed or um, how a bike is able to move forward or something like that, something uh, sort of a singular event and trying to unpack it, uh, how to explain that event. And very often that's how causal accounts will, you know, sort of get things going. Here's a simple cause and here's the effect. And that's going to ground or sort of guide our our, uh, reasoning about this. Mm. Um, But in the book, I really try and focus on science's interest in patterns, in particular patterns across uh, heterogeneous or very different systems. This is where universality plays an important role uh, in later chapters of the book. Um, That I think very often that's what really gets scientists uh, excited or interested in explaining something or trying to understand it is when very different systems. Some are studied by physicists, some are studied by biologists, some are just very different uh, physical systems, uh, all seem to display this pattern that keeps showing up. And I think when we want to explain why that pattern is stable, in many cases, what the scientists are doing with things like the renormalization group or homogenization or various other techniques um, is trying to show that a lot of the various differences of these Uh, systems across uh, which the pattern occurs are actually irrelevant to its occurrence. Um, Another way this can happen is just if we really thought that something should have been relevant, but it seems like it's not. So for example, um, uh, I think it's an explanatory piece of information to learn that with the ideal gas law, the actual positions and velocities of the particular particles, although an important uh, sort of Those are important features in lots of areas of physics um, that study gases and things like that, that uh, with respect to the sort of things in the ideal gas law and those macro scale properties, those features are actually irrelevant. So that's an enlightening piece of information because our theories have sort of guided us or our previous reasoning about these kinds of cases have told us that that very likely would have been a relevant factor or were sort of surprised by its irrelevance. And I think in those cases, scientists sometimes want to know 
again, why does this keep occurring despite the fact that these are diff- these things are different across these very different cases? Right. Okay. Because there's a lot of irrelevant stuff that, you know, would not be explanatory, right? Correct. So this is where the context yeah. plays a, a really important role is, yeah. of course, there are seemingly an infinite number of things that are irrelevant. Yeah. So there have right. to be some... Uh, and I, I do also say in the book that I think irrelevance alone isn't enough to really explain. So you're going to have to cite at least one thing that was relevant um, right. in, in most of these cases. But, but then when it comes to explaining patterns, there are ways in which the context or the way we ask a why question, such as, you know, I think Fisher's sex ratio model uh, about the one-to-one sex ratio is pretty clear that his target exponendum is something like, why do we keep seeing the one-to-one sex ratio across all these different species? Uh-huh. And there I think his, his sense is, you know, the differences in all of these species seem to make no difference to the sex ratio that shows up. And he's interested in that kind of question. Um, and that's where we get things like equilibrium reasoning that try and show that, you know, no matter what path the, the uh, system takes uh, in terms of its causal trajectories, it'll end up at this equilibrium point. But I think there's a lot of information there about um, the irrelevance of things that might have been relevant or we might have thought were relevant going in um, yeah. that plays an important role. Um, but that context about what we believe would have been relevant or were sort of surprised is irrelevant plays an important role in picking out the irrelevance information that will actually contribute rather than just distract or something like that. Right, right. Good, good. Um, so you mentioned universality, universality. Um, classes or, or universe yeah universality classes and the whole concept of, of universality and this is this is connected to what you call your holistic distortion uh, view of idealized theories or models which um, you, you kind of hinted at before you know this idea that you can't really separate a theory or model into the accurate parts and the inaccurate parts and we only care about the accurate parts um, so right. could you um, can you say a bit about you know about this you know what you call the holistic distortion view, um, and then how the concept of universality um, uh, enables us to use these ineliminable, holistic, pervasive, idealized models to you know for the various explanatory purposes? Sure. Um, yeah. So the I think sort of part one of the critique and replacement, as we just talked about, is the sort of not all explanation is causal. So in chapter four, I give a a sort of more general account of explanation. The next piece of the sort of critique slash replacement of the standard view is this idea against what I call the decompositional strategy in the book um, and and in a previous paper, um, where essentially across a lot of different debates, I think philosophers have sort of tried to save the uh, the epistemic success of science by taking looking at scientific theories and models and trying to break them into their true and false parts, mm-hmm. and then arguing that the only the true or accurate parts are really doing the work. Um, and you see this in realism debates, you see it in explanation debates, you see it in modeling debates. It's a pretty common uh, strategy. Um, So what I do in chapter five of the book is I argue that that's not going to work because the idealizations are sort of um, not the kind of thing that you can easily 
remove from the model or isolate from the accurate parts of the model, or the, I should say purportedly accurate parts of the model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, in fact, a model really is this sort of uh, a collective whole in which uh, even the things that we think we're sort of trying to get um, accurately represented in the model are being distorted via the lens of this idealized modeling framework. So there are lots of idealizations and abstractions that go into just setting things up, typically for a mathematical model, um, that make it sort of function, and that those things tend to sort of um, distort not just the things that we think are relevant or not interesting, but even those things that scientists believe are uh, make a difference to the phenomenon and are of interest to them. And so there's no sense in which we can isolate the falsehoods of science and say they're only distorting things that are irrelevant. Mm. Because very often their um, introduction, for example, an infinite system in biology behaves in lots of ways very differently from a finite system uh, in various cases, same in physics. Um, and I, uh, so I try and argue that the influence of those distortions is not just to, say, eliminate drift, but a system that involves, in, in biology, in evolution, a system that involves no drift because it's an infinite population is also a system that's going to distort what's happening with selection because selection and drift are intimately intertwined uh, in these cases, um, for example. So uh, the holistic distortion view is really not so much a claim that the models always pervasively or holistically distort everything, mm-hmm. but that as philosophers of science trying to give a justification for idealized modeling, um, we should recognize that the scientists and the philosophers of science, too, are very rarely in a position to identify or point to exactly which parts of a model or theory are true and which are false and to what degree. And so if we're rarely able to sort of satisfy that requirement of knowing which parts are true, um, I think we need an alternative way of epistemically justifying science um, from the position that we're in. And so... The holistic distortion view is really uh, a claim or a, a proposal that we ought to characterize these models and uh, as things as representations that just distort both irrelevant factors and relevant factors. And instead of trying to justify their use by saying that at least they're true with respect to the important stuff, mm-hmm. just grant that they're inaccurate with respect to lots of important things too. And then we need an alternative way of justifying them that doesn't appeal to this sort of accurate representation uh, right. of the important things. And that's where the universality class sort of idea uh, shows up and plays an important role. So right. instead of talking about accurate representation of the causes or the mechanisms that led to an event, um, I suggest that physicists use the term universality class in a very particular way. I propose that we have to sort of expand it a little bit to talk more generally about the ways that um, different systems might display similar patterns. In physics, it tends to be tied to things like critical exponents and critical behaviors um, uh, in particular. Um, But I think the idea is the same, namely that if you look across various fluids and magnets, you end up finding these same critical behaviors uh, showing up, and we'd like some understanding or ability to, to unpack why it is that that's happening, and also why it is that we can use these really simplistic um, uh, computational models like the lattice gas automaton model uh, to explain and understand them, even though the model that we're using is really nothing like any of the fluids or magnets uh, whose critical behaviors we'd like to explain and understand. And so universality is um, 
or universality class is just the class of systems that all display some pattern of behavior, as I call it, um, despite their underlying physical differences. Mm-hmm. And underlying here isn't uh, meant to be something like only at the small scale, but just in general, they have lots of physical differences at small scales and macro scales. And, um, but despite all of that, they seem to display some stable or robust kind of pattern uh, that the scientists are interested in. Um, and if we can find lots of these classes, and what I try and argue in the book is that not only do these uh, universality classes sort of obtain in the real world, that is, there's lots of real fluids in a universality class, but that many of the idealized models and theories that scientists build are also in those universality classes. And so this gives us a way of not only um, thinking about how we might explain or understand why very different fluids and magnets and whatever system, lots of different evolutionary systems or something like that, all display the same patterns in the real world. But we can also include these models that the scientists are using as uh, that are very different from the real world um, and get a handle on why it is that they also display the same universal behaviors. Um, And in particular, that has to do with identifying just a few minimal features that are necessary for that uh, universal behavior to occur and that are compatible with lots of other sort of combinations of what's happening in terms of the causes, mechanisms, and ontological features of the system um, along the way. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess, I mean, when I was reading about it, it sounded, you know, coming from a more philosophy of psychology background. uh, yeah, I thought, well, it sounds like there's accuracy here. It's just not, you know, accuracy in terms of the parts or anything mechanistic. It's, sure. it's you know, anything that is in a, in a universality class, you're, it's in the class because it exhibits a particular pattern of behavior. And, it, you know, it's the accuracy is, you know, is, is this theory kind of accurately capturing what this pattern is such that we can put all these systems into this class and these other systems into this other class. So it's, it, it didn't sure. look to me as if you had, you know, gotten rid of the, you know, mapping accurate parts, or, you know, sure. uh, at all, but that simply it was uh, accuracy of behavior or patterns rather than accuracy of, you know, mechanisms. Right. So uh, two things to say, um, I guess the first thing to say is that uh, I I would take it as a success in some sense if the idea was just, um, well, the things that we used to think um, we were trying to accurately represent really have nothing to do with any of these explanations. So we're not really trying to do accurate representation with respect to causes or mechanisms or any of the other things that we thought were explanatory re- explanatorily relevant. Uh-huh. But that, as you said, doesn't really get rid of the accuracy thing full stop. Um, I'll say two things. The first is that uh, I don't don't think it's really, uh, there's always going to be a way to try and find some kind of accuracy in a model. And so I think Uh the real thing to say here is whether or not the accurate representation is really playing the role of justifying the model is really important. Mm -hmm. So it's not just does the model accurately represent, but is or are the things that it accurately represents what justifies us in using it to explain. Um, but on that note, right, as you, as you pointed out, right, there is this link between the patterns of behavior, namely the universal patterns that does seem to be doing this justificatory rule. 
Um, I think the key piece here, and this is why I said it's not just about smaller things being distorted or left out and accurately representing the larger things or the, the macro scale things, uh, is that I want to say that you can, dis- I, I prefer to use display a pattern of behavior because I think accurate representation and mapping have particular um, histories about sort of getting okay. the parts, the relata correct, right. and the interactions sure. between them correct. Um, and I want to sort of suggest that you could um, display a pattern of, say, dependence between two features like X and Y, even if you radically or drastically distort the features of X and drastically distort the features of Y and mediate the relationship between them by a very different process uh, than what is going on in the real system. Mm-hmm. So to me, that that looks like although you're displaying a pattern of behavior, I don't really want to call it accurately representing a pattern uh, or a dependence between A and B, given that you can really um, distort A and you can really distort B and the relation between them. Um, And I think out of sort of, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, but respect for the diversity of ways that nature and models do this, that is the, the various ways that they display the same patterns, I think calling it mapping or accurate representation sort of misses that that fundamental uh, point. Uh, that really the the striking thing that we're trying to understand is why they are so different and yet displaying something similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, uh, I, yeah. So I want to make sure that we highlight that piece um, and focus really on you know the counterfactual dependencies that are either being displayed by the model or that the scientists can extract from the model rather than whether or not the model accurately represents or maps onto A and B features in the real world or the mechanisms or processes that um, link them in various ways right. in the world. Right, yeah. right. I think that's, yeah. Um, so what, I mean, another thing that had occurred to me is, I mean, as you mentioned before, I mean, all your, your examples are all sort of taken physics or biology, and you do include, I think, Schelling's model of, uh, you know, the simple model of the segregation, right? So that kind of gets a little bit into, I don't know, sociology, and I think there's economics, but psychology is kind of left out. Um, Have you considered how your, you know, overall uh, approach might apply to psychology? Uh, I have. So there's a little bit in the book um, at the end of chapter seven, I sort of try and compare this concept of universality, which, as I said, we're going to have to expand from the way that the physicists sort of uh, historically have have constrained it. Um, uh, Why that concept is better than lots of these other ways that philosophers have thought about patterns across different systems. Certainly not the first philosopher to to talk about patterns or unification and things like that. So, um, uh, so I talk, one of the things that I talk about there is why I think universality is, is applicable, but, but preferable to cases, uh, of say functionalism or multiple realizability, Uh um, which you find in philosophy of mind and things like that. Um, and in particular, I think the idea is that one way you can get stability across very different cases is to have properties that are multiply realizable or to focus on functional uh, roles or functional properties. Um, but that that is a sort of um, 
and there are reasons that the philosophy of mind literature is focused on this, that's a sort of metaphysically loaded way of getting stability. Namely, it requires properties and there to be instantiation of those properties at smaller scales or levels and uh, higher scales and levels, and that there's um, this sort of relationship of multiple realizability of a particular property. Um, whereas I want the sort of conception that we have, at least in terms of justifying idealized modeling, as you said, uh, there's a wide range of cases in the book, but I can't, I didn't cover all of the sciences. But I think the uh, the goal is to try and say that really science big picture is interested in these patterns across different cases. And that in philosophy of mind, there's been a focus on one particular kind of stability across differences via multiple realizability and things like that. Um, but that there are lots of other ways that that same thing can happen that I don't think um, should be tied to the kinds of concepts that necessarily show up in those debates like supervenience and other, other things like that, that aren't, I think, um, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, metaphysically complex um, and might muddy the waters more than what we need to do what I um, take as not a completely epistemic project, but a largely epistemic project of figuring out what explanations are and how the models can be justified in giving us explanations and understanding. And so um, uh, maybe this is also part of what's driving some of the non-causal focus in the book, but trying to do um, some of these things with as little metaphysical baggage as possible, I think is a sort of one of my goals um, throughout. And so, um, so I think it certainly applies. I think Bob Batterman nicely uh, shows how universality basically is just what uh, uh, Fosters of Mind have talked about with respect to multiple realizability um, in various cases. And so I think we can capture it with universality and easily apply it there. Um, but I hesitate to sort of um, want to substitute those terms because I think they they are less general than universality. Okay, good. Um, okay, well, you just you just mentioned explanation and understanding, and you know, at the at the end of the book, you um, uh, you address how these are uh, how they're related, right? Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of work you know, fairly recently on the difference between explanation and understanding. And, you know, understanding just seems to be somewhat of a subjective sort of way of thinking about, uh, you know, some phenomenon and explanation is in some sense, you know, it's not merely, you can have a good explanation without really understanding it. Uh, and you can have a sense of understanding, uh, when the explanation isn't really an explanation. Um, so, so the, the right. relationship between these two different concepts has been, is, is a matter of, of a great deal of debate. Um, so on your view, um, you think that explanation is not, you know, not necessary for understanding and it's certainly not sufficient for understanding. Um, so can you, can you, Explain your take on that debate. Yeah, sure. So this is, um, uh, uh, I don't want to put that, it's a little bit tricky to, to parse out, but I'll start here um, in that I think one of the things that's been widely accepted and that I use as a criteria for a good account of explanation in the book is that explanations certainly generate understanding. 
And so any account of explanation and I think understanding should tell us why it is that being able to explain something tends to, in most cases, generate understanding of that thing. Um, And so I think uh, what I try and argue in the book is I provide not only a modal or counterfactual account of explanation, but a modal or counterfactual account of understanding. And I say that by grasping the counterfactual dependencies and independencies in an explanation, that will tend to give you the kinds of modal information that you would like to have uh, to understand the phenomenon as well. Um, The reason it's not sufficient on its own to have an explanation, I think, is that first, um, uh, if we think about explanations as things in the world or sets of information, they actually have to be grasped by by the individual. So they have to um, take it up. This is the sort of subjective piece you were referring to. And I think also on my view, they have to incorporate the information and the explanation into their existing uh, set of knowledge in various ways. And things can sort of go wrong at that point. So someone might grasp an explanation, but just not be able to incorporate it into their system uh, of belief or whatever you want to call it there. Um, And therefore wouldn't actually be able to gain understanding or at least not the same understanding that they should get from grasping the explanation. So I don't think um, just having the explanation is enough. That is, there's more to understanding uh, than doing that. Um, and uh, on, the, on the sort of the other side, uh, I argue that in uh, this chapter, this is chapter eight, uh, that there are several ways in which we can improve our modal our grasp of the modal possibilities, as I put it, or a sense of what's necessary or possible um, without being able to explain a phenomenon. So I refer to um, cases where we, like the Hawk Dove game, where we just want to show that it's possible, or I should say Maynard Smith's original goal is just to show that individual selection, uh, individual level selection could possibly result in this sort of limited war behavior, as he calls it, or restraint in combat. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that individual level selection was the cause or was the explanation or anything like that. Or even if it was due to individual level selection, uh, that it occurred in any way like the Hawk Dove model describes, it seems like the Hawk Dove model just gives us a very simple claim about what's possible or what could have been the case uh, without providing an explanation. But I think it nonetheless deepens our understanding of um, this behavior that we observe in in real cases. And then in the physics case, uh, a colleague of mine here at Bryn Mawr, uh, Kate Daniel, does some really uh, amazing work modeling uh, the origins of the universe, but also things like uh, star clusters and how they, um, uh, whether or not they hold on to stars if they have certain levels of energy. And I think a lot of the modeling in this sort of astrophysics uh, realm is dedicated to think about thinking about lots of different ways that the system possibly could have been, and they sort of will map out 150 different ways the universe could have evolved, um, or 150 different ways that a star cluster could could evolve if it had different initial conditions and things like that. But very rarely, I think, is any one of those models aimed at trying to f- provide an explanation for why certain things in fact occurred, or describe the ways in fact uh, that it are the reasons why it in fact occurred. Um, it's just about exploring possibility space in many cases. And the scientists often are pretty clear that what this does is in simple terms, show us that something is possible. 
But knowing that one thing is possible, I think, is less than uh, or is, is not the same as being able to explain why an event occurred. And so lots of pieces of understanding or modal pieces of modal information are going to sort of fall short of that threshold of providing a complete explanation for why the phenomenon occurred. Oh, okay. Um, that's the idea. So, so we can right. have understanding without explanation. That's the idea. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, so what you said before about, you know, providing information about counterfactual dependence and independence uh, is explanatory. No? Right. So, uh, yeah, so I think uh, what I argue in the book is that there's, it's not enough to have one. So that's the kind of information that is explanatory, and therefore it gives us a clear link between explanations and understanding, which I think we should have. Um, But the idea is that we require a a sufficient set or collection uh, of pieces of counterfactual information to explain. So I, I argue in the book that very rarely is a single counterfactual dependence going to be good enough uh, to explain why something occurred. After all, you might just say, you know, why is uh, Colin in this interview? Uh, and you might say, well, it counterfactually depends on the Big Bang. And that might be <laughs> true, um, but it doesn't seem like it's really sufficient to, to provide the explanation, uh, even if I want a, an explanation that might go that far back. Um, and same goes for counterfactual independence, right? As we noted, there's lots of things that are irrelevant, but very rarely is citing just one, or I argue in the book, actually never is citing just one thing that's irrelevant going to be sufficient to explain. But it is a modal piece of information that I think helps deepen our understanding. So one of the things that's happening in the background here is that understanding, I think, very much comes in degrees, whereas I try and set some clear thresholds for uh, a complete explanation. Um, uh-huh. Even if pieces could contribute to it. Okay, so they're not just distinct. They're not distinct kinds of epistemic states. Uh, um, they kind of grade I into. Think, yeah. Sure. So yeah. So I think one way to think about what's happening is um, that understanding, as I say in the book, un- our understanding in science neither starts nor stops with an explanation. So you might think of it as slowly increasing our understanding or deepening it. Um, uh, until we get to an explanation and then we can keep going beyond that too because there will be pieces of modal information that are not given by the explanation that we might be interested in, either that come from other explanations or just some other model. Um, I think uh, I think there's more to explanation uh, and without going through the whole account, I won't get all those criteria in there, but there are more criteria I want to put on explanation uh, that would uh, would have to be satisfied before just getting a lot of understanding or deepening understanding. Um, one way I was talking to uh, Kareem Khalifa, who's written about some of these similar topics, um, and one way I put it to him, um, he said he wants explanation to be cheap and understanding to be expensive, uh, and I think just the opposite. That understanding is pretty cheap and easy to get. It's just you know any modal information deepens it. Um, Whereas explanation, I think, is more expensive. That is, it has more criteria to, to uh, satisfy. Oh, cool. Good. Um, well, that made me understand, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> certainly. Um, so I was, I was going to ask about, uh, you know, scientific realism, which, you know, always seems to pop up everywhere. Um, but I think we're, we're just about out of time. So I will leave 
uh, I will leave listeners to, you know, crack open the book to find out what you have to say about scientific realism, because you are uh, defending a view that is realist. Um, That's right. uh, But, you know, so I don't have to, like, cut us off too quickly. Um, Let me just ask a final question, which is, um, are you working on something now that kind of follows up this book, or have you gone to other topics? What's what's on your menu at the moment? Uh, Yeah, so there's sort of there are several projects that grew out of out of the book and some that didn't. Um, but three that grew out of the book is we talked a lot about modal information and possibilities. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of possibilities in the world. And therefore, I'm working on a paper that sort of tries to dig a little deeper into exactly which possibilities deepen our understanding and to what degrees. Uh-huh. Um, and to try and if it's not going to be, we mentioned Lewis earlier, I don't think distance from the actual world is a very good measure of yeah. um, which possibilities will deepen it more. In fact, departing far from the world can actually deepen things uh, more in certain cases. And so it becomes difficult to sort of parse out which par- possibilities or how we should pick out exactly which ones are going to deepen scientific understanding. So that's mm-hmm. one project is to, to sort that question out a little more precisely. Um, and then in the book, uh, I defend... I call it a communal and dynamical account of representation and understanding in science. And the idea here is to really think about uh, instead of conceiving of scientific understanding as something that's had by individuals and individuals' minds or as a mental state as really a communal accomplishment. And what does that mean in terms of tracking the history and development of uh, scientific understanding or the constructing of a scientific theory or model by a community over time um, and trying to track some of those features uh, in particular and trying to look at the ways in which diversity of scientists and diversity with respect to um, the methods and models that they're using actually improves those kinds of communal and dynamical processes. And then the last project uh, you mentioned, the the realism version, um, is that uh, the version of realism I want to sort of defend in the book is this idea that... um, we should be realists about the epistemic outputs of science. That is the explanations and understanding that they give us. Uh, but we should stop being realists or stop, I should say, worrying about realism with respect to the models and theories. So the models and theories are known to be, I think, or at least I argue in the book, pervasively distorted and inaccurate. So that's not really where the action is. The action is uh, trying to show how we can use those pervasively distorted things to explain and understand the world. And so I try and um, expand on this understanding realism view in in various places and the sort of implications of taking that stance towards science and how it relates or is different from more traditional uh, conceptions of realism. Cool. Well, I look forward to seeing that work. Um, But we are currently out of time, though my understanding of the book has certainly been deepened uh, by oh, our conversation. I, I do appreciate it. Um, it's, a, it's a very rich, very rich book. So, um, you know, I, I encourage our listeners to, uh, to crack it open. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, I wish you luck with, uh, with those projects. And uh, they all sound interesting. And uh, good luck with all of them. And, and you know, we'll cross paths again. We sure will. Thank you so much, Carrie. I really appreciate it.
Okay, bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Colin Rice, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bryn Mawr College. We've been talking about his new book, Leveraging Distortions, Explanation, Idealization, and Universality in Science, which is just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. Thank you.